0: In this episode of the Coffee with Philosophers podcast, I'm honored to have on Dr. Max Baker Hitch to discuss his paper on sin-based responses to divine hiddenness. It is an open-access article published in the Journal of Religious Studies, so feel free to go ahead and get it, and I'll put a link to it down below, too, so you can go check it out. Dr. Max Baker Hitch is a tutor, which is like a lecturer in the U.S., In philosophy at Oxford, his research interests lie at the interest of analytic philosophy of religion and epistemology, two of my favorites as well. (laughs) Uh, He's published on a lot of things, uh, specifically divine hiddenness, religious diversity, ideological challenges to moral and religious beliefs, and many other things. So if you want to check out all of his uh, publications and go deeper on his work, I'll go ahead and also provide a link to the best place to do that. Thank you so much for being on the Coffee with Philosophers podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Now, as you may or may not know, i like to start out with the five books question. So what single five-volume books, uh, five single-volume <laughs> books, would you bring to a deserted island other than the Bible if you were going to be stuck there for 10 years alone?
1: All right. Well, since you did give me a heads-up about this, um, I had a chance <laughs> to think about it. It was a hard question, but um, so I've got in there um, at Rene Descartes' Meditations, Augustine's Confessions, uh, C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, Richard Swinburne' The Existence of God, and Eleanor Stump's Wandering in Darkness.
0: Wow. Are you reading my uh, notes? <laughs> 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 that- that's actually really close to what I would bring too. Okay. Wow, good. Uh, those are those are uh, great suggestions. Yeah, wandering darkness, the existence of God, a classic, and uh, Screw Tape Letters is an interesting one. What what was that one about? Was,
1: yeah, because I know it's not really theological nonfiction per se, um, but I. Um, thing it just shows Lewis's genius in terms of his understanding of human nature, the human condition, mm. and the, and it's so witty and um, just entertaining.
0: Yeah, that's great. That's great. So this is a really interesting paper because there's not a lot of people going in for the sin-based response mm. to mm. the argument from Divine Hiddenness. Now, there are some, but I think this is a really important paper because you're sort of going through all the different options Easy. with regard to how you might best formulate a such a response. So just kind of starting out, could you kind of give us the big picture view of what you're arguing or what you're sort of fleshing out? And then also... Um, maybe just a little bit about why you think this is an important project.
1: Sure. So I've been sort of in the divine hiddenness literature for a while. Um, I've published on it before on the demographic divine hiddenness objection. Um, And so, yeah, I've probably, you know, read most of the kind of analytic philosophy of religion literature on, on the problem of hiddenness, which is actually a relatively young problem in terms of its formulation in, in the way that we're now familiar with from J.L. Schellenberg. Um, but the thing that I kept noticing was that a basically... Schellenberg's argument can be boiled down to a deductive argument with two premises, really, one of which says if a perfectly loving God exists, then no one fails to believe in God unless it's their fault. Um, In essence, there are no non-resistant non-believers. It's the term he uses. Um, And then the second premise says, but there are some non-resistant non-believers. And so that leads to the atheistic conclusion. Um, And it's very clear that by far the majority of responders to Schellenberg attack the first premise. And in some cases, people will remark on the option of attacking the second premise, which says that there are non-resistant non-believers. So to attack it would be to deny that there are any non-resistant non-believers. And that's what you could call a sin-based response because it's saying basically that the reason for the failure of some people in this world to believe in God is due to sin. Um, And I just noticed that um, very few people give the time of day to that option And it's not really that I wanted to defend it per se, but I more just wanted it to have more airtime and to be thought through more carefully um, Mm. and not just to be dismissed in a single sentence. Um, So I think that's kind of the big picture.
0: Okay. And when you say sin-based response... Can you define for us or just give us a rough sketch what are we talking about when we're talking about sin? I know there's different accounts of sin, but kind of just generally what what how are you thinking of sin?
1: Well, so I I think the way that so there as you noted there are some people, there are a few people who've actually tried to defend a a, a sin-based response to hiddenness. I think one of the most in-depth recent um Authors to have done this is is my colleague bill wood at oxford mm-hmm. um william wood um in his excellent mm-hmm. book on blaise pascal um mm. self deception um and essentially they are people who are in, working in that tradition whether so wood focuses on Pascal but others will take their cue from augustine and Pascal himself was in very much in that vein uh, they're thinking in terms of sin as basically um disordered desires or disordered loves so that mm. um a, yeah basically a person ro- loves the wrong things they they in effect treat something um that is penultimate as ultimate um Whatever that be, whether it be um the, the, the love of fame, reputation, material prosperity could be anything, um, but the, the, I think that Augustine and people who followed in his footsteps have have wanted to suggest that sin it's fundamentally it's not um, an error in terms of our uh, beliefs about the world, our our intellectual kind of understanding first and foremost it's a disorder of the will or the desires
0: okay yeah that that's helpful so we we locate sin in a way at the point of making a something that's not ultimate an ultimate thing and maybe loving that thing too much mm-hmm. and in a way perhaps deceiving ourselves about what we're doing is yeah. that also a little element um, where you, you think
1: yes for word that's very much what's going on uh yeah so okay. he thinks that we um we fail to love the 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 real ultimate reality which is god um and we substitute something in the place of god and and love that thing as if it were ultimate but then we deceive ourselves as and and lead ourselves to believe that that um, that's not what's going on
0: I've definitely experienced that in my life. <laughs> that that's yeah, for sure. Uh, and it's 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 uh sounds a lot like also making an idol of something and then tricking yourself into thinking that that thing you're not making an idol of that yeah. thing.
1: There's definitely um a tradition of thinking about idolatry as essentially the thing that I was just describing is that that's what idolatry is, is, is to substitute something that is created and finite um for God and, and treat it as though it were ultimate.
0: Yeah. So there's also that in that tradition. I guess we'd call that the Pascalian view of sin. Is that
1: we could do yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay. Or or Augustinian, um yeah. Okay.
0: Okay. So you actually, in the paper, go over three sin-based accounts. Do you mind uh, sort of sketching those accounts and yeah, well, that's kind right. of just give us a sense? Um, you mentioned it as premise two, mm-hmm. but the, the key there is that, as you our audience may or may not know, in order to counter that, it seems like a real tall order. You have to argue that at no point in history, past, present, and we're talking yeah. all the way back to er- early hominids. There has never been a person who has not believed in God and was uh, a non-resistant, non-resistant, like open to yeah. the possibility of a relationship with God. So it seems just, I got to set it up. It seems like a real tall order, even if you say yeah. sin. And that's, uh, that's right. And, the, and I know I do, do this. Have to,
1: yeah, I agree. And that's why I don't commit myself to that. Um, what i call a universal sin-based response um mm. maybe we can talk about why i i nonetheless think that sin-based responses can still have value even if they don't um offer a a universal um uh yeah a universal sin-based response being the claim that every non-believer um, is in a state of non-belief due to their own sin. Um, so I, I'm not personally committed to endorsing that claim. Um, that is the claim one would have to endorse t- in order for that to, to be a response to John Schellenberg's argument, because as you just pointed mm-hmm. out, his argument requires that there be at least one uh, non-resistant non-believer in the entire history of humanity. So, yeah, it, it looks like quite a tall order to establish that there isn't even one.
0: <laughs> right. But And we'll get to that later. So I'll, I'll pin that because in the end, you do talk about how SINBASE accounts might be a partial response and especially against, um, perhaps we should mention it, the Stephen Mateson yeah, uh, the Martian man and type probabilistic arguments. Yeah. Um, so, could you just give us before we go into yeah. the three sin based accounts, what's like a a real rough sketch of those? Right. Good. So,
1: yeah, whereas Schellenberg's argument is deductive, which is to say that he he claims to have some premises which, if they're all true, guarantee that atheism is is the case. Um, whereas what Marsh and is are saying is, there's some facts in the world that they're not gonna claim that they are strictly incompatible with God existing, but what they're gonna claim is that these facts are more strongly predicted by atheism than by theism. And the facts in question are, um, well, for Mateson, the uneven distribution of theistic belief in, throughout human history and geography so basically he's thinking that theistic belief seems to be more heavily concentrated in certain cultures at certain times in human history is thinking jason marsh is basically using the same framework that i just described in terms of s- some facts which are allegedly more strongly expected on atheism than on theism but he's going to focus on the alleged fact, and I say alleged because some people have challenged it as uh, as an empirical claim, but the alleged fact that early humans, um, pre-axial humans, that's to say, before the emergence of the, the major religions, um, the Abrahamic religions, um, Hinduism, Buddhism, and so on, <clears throat> um, humans living before that era um, were... St- um in a position where they they didn't have a concept of a monotheistic god that that's basically the idea they may have had belief in um spirits of various kinds they may have worshiped their ancestors they may have thought that there were spirits in the natural world but they didn't have uh a concept of a a single all powerful deity that that's marsh's claim and and his claim is that well that is um, unexpected, that fact is unexpected if a monotheistic God really exists because surely he would want everyone to know about his existence so they could have relationship and so on. But it's not mm-hmm. very surprising on atheism. That's the, the rough idea.
0: Yeah, and, and can mm-hmm. you roughly give us a sketch of the three positions before we get to some objections that yeah. these positions really need to wrestle with? What are the three camps that a person wanting to take up a sin-based account uh, like yeah. fall into.
1: Yeah, good. So, um, okay. The first, I, I basically divided them up in terms of the way they try to defend a sin-based response. Um, they they may well all all agree in terms of what the content of the of of the sin-based model is, um, which is to say, you know, that basically all human beings have this sinful nature, which could be characterized in the sort of Augustinian terms that we were just discussing in terms of disordered desires, that kind of thing. But the three camps, as I I divided them up, really were, um, so you've got people like um, William Wood, Bill Wood, um, Alvin Plantinga, you've got um, Tyler McNabb and Tyler Tabor and, and a few others, where they basically to sketch this model of how things could be um and the, the way i describe it is i think what they're doing is giving a defense um peter van inwagen defines a defense as a, a story which could for all we know be true um it's um th- they're not claiming that um it's probably true but they're saying it could for all we know be be this way that's that's basically my interpretation of what the the figures that i just described are doing that they're not really putting forward arguments they're not trying to point us to empirical evidence that this is what's going on but they're just saying this could be the case Mm. Um, and if it is the case then um then uh second premise would be false that that there would be um no non-resistant non-believers if if this augustinian picture of things were true um the second camp was um people who do actually try and give positive arguments for the sin-based model for reasons for thinking that it that it, it probably is the way things are um and i pointed mm-hmm. to uh, two two philosophers douglas henry and robert leahy they, they basically both try and suggest that um anyone who is is really conscientious enough about the truth um conscientious enough in their pursuit of the truth about whether God exists, um, would not um just rest content with um a position of, of settled atheism or agnosticism. Um the idea is if if they cared sufficiently about finding out the truth, um they they would never reach the place that Schellenberg thinks Um, one can rationally reach where you you conclude that there's no God um, and you you think you've kind of done your due due diligence what what um, uh, Henry and Leahy are saying essentially is that that one couldn't do that one couldn't sort of just let the investigation rest Um, and and that wouldn't be compatible with the kind of Um, intellectual conscientiousness that that would be required to be um, a non-resistant non-believer the third and then the third camp um i talked about um uh, mark Talbot. so he he points to an interesting consideration which is that people who convert from atheism or agnosticism to theism um will quite often say that on reflection, looking back at their past selves, that they think uh, now, from their current vantage point as theists, they think that when they were non-theists, they were culpable. Mm. Um, that they had mm. enough evidence, um, or at least that they, um, the evidence that they had in front of them was not such as to um, license just a contented state of non-belief. Mm. Um, so that's... Yeah. So that's Mark Talbot. And then Jake O'Connell, um, in fairness, he's not really, I don't think, specifically trying to defend a sin based account. But I thought this was an interesting point. Anyway, he offers um, a range of real life cases where uh, a personal group of people fail to believe that God exists, despite um, what they consider to be a miracle having occurred. Um, mm so uh yeah connell is, suggests that you know this looks like um some evidence at least that um, well let's put it like this when if i were to say um well i would believe in god if if a miracle were to happen in in front of my eyes or you know if i were to be presented with good enough evidence that a miracle happened but jake o'connell's basically saying actually maybe you wouldn't um
0: Yeah. And I often hear that from atheists, you know, what would it take for you to become a theist? And their response often is, well, a religious experience. Mm. And that's a really interesting point that he's citing some real life cases where you have a miracle and yet there's still resistance or some some inability to take on board the evidence before you as it really is in terms of its weight yeah so to my mind that suggests there's in the background like you said disordered desires some kind of desire to not believe in god and so maybe that account is sort of ferreting out the -hmm. fact that there is this desire that is preventing you from seeing the evidence for Mm -hmm. what it is and then updating your beliefs accordingly
1: yep yeah that's right um so I think um, essentially, I, I basically want to give those those different um, those different philosophers their due in terms of like, I think that they, at, at the very least they should be part of the conversation around divine hiddenness.
0: Um, right. That's a really important thing. So I think your paper, what it's doing is it's sort of saying, let's let them all join us at the table. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. Now you, you actually cite three different facts that cause trouble for these views though. And this would be something that if you're going to take seriously a sin-based account, you need to sort of wrestle through the best way to respond to these. Yeah. So I thought what we might do is I'll just go ahead and read the objection. And then if you could sort of spell out, uh, or actually it's, it's a fact that then turns yeah. into the objection, and I'll just kind of read out the objection and then, if yeah. you could sort of explain how the fact sort of gives rise to the objection that'd be that'd be sure. great so objection a is what we were talking about regarding pre axial people now pre axial does that just mean prior to recorded history or
1: i don't prior know, to list to- that's um i i yeah. Okay. I think um the idea is uh, at any rate um prior to the advent of um the, the major world religions that, that we know today.
0: Okay. Okay. So yeah, they, they existed prior to the monotheistic concept sort of being in currency around the world?
1: Yes that's okay. right
0: think, okay yeah, uh,
1: yeah. Uh, so early humans is a sort of rather vague term that's used to to cover yeah if you like prehistoric humans as as you said maybe we w- we'd cut it off in terms of recorded history um when does that start i mean i suppose the the kind of um egyptian civilizations are the first ones that we have very much uh you know solid recorded data about
0: OK, and so this is the idea that if you can't have the concept of the monotheistic God, you know, omniscient, uh, you know, all powerful, all knowing, all, all good and so on. And maybe some Swinburne and things, you know, totally f- uh, free and right. uh, some other things in there. If you don't have roughly that concept, then how can you resist uh, being that you can't possess the concept of you can't even think of this being so how would it be possible for you to have resist- resistantly rejected this monotheistic god even if it's not possible that you possess the, the concept and the culture in which you live in doesn't even make it a live option mm. so could you explain kind of how that objection falls out of some of the the facts that you you mentioned
1: yeah so the idea is going to be well Look, if people are going to um, be deemed by the sin-based model to be in a state of rejecting God, um, you, know, uh, the, the reason, you know the reason, basically, that the explanation for why they are in a state of non-belief is that they are willfully resisting a relationship with God. Well, the thought is, well, if they don't even have the idea of the God that we're talking about, the, the monotheistic God that you just described, then can it make much sense for them to be thought to be willfully resisting a relationship with with a being that they, that they, they, are, they haven't conceived of?
0: Okay, and then I have a worry related to this that's just been in the back of my mind, so feel free to uh, take this in any direction, but I, I just wonder if it's even that we can even informatively apply the concept of non-resistant non-belief to these cases. Mm. So mm. if it's not possible that the person resist the correct God because they don't even possess the concept of it and it wasn't yes. a live option in their culture, then I don't, I think that's like vacuously true that they're non-resistant. Yeah, of, of course they're non-resistant because right. it not even a, a live option. So, Um, you might say the concept overgeneralizes and it shouldn't be applied to preaxial people because when you say they're non-resistant, that's just elliptical for saying like they're culturally benighted. That is, they're in a state of ignorance about this God and there's really nothing they could do to overcome that ignorance, Uh, you know, save some sort of miracle from God, but assuming God wants to just let culture play out. So, I, I just struggle to see why we should even apply this concept in the first place, because it seems vacuously true and uninformative yeah. that they're non-resistant.
1: Yeah, I see where you're coming from. I suppose the 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 hiddenness argument defenders, people like Schellenberg, Mates, and Marsh, they might grant what you've just said, but I suppose what they'd wanna say is, well, Yes, fine, but the sin-based response needs us to be able to say that they are resistant non-believers, and that's equally um, a, a sort of misapplication of, of the concept because they, they're, they're yeah, okay. Even if we can't say they're they're non-resistant non-believers, um, we can't we we nor can we say that they are resistant non-believers. But that's what the sin-based account wants to be able to say.
0: If um, they would draw a distinction between sin that is sort of and sort of out of our DNA, inherited so to uh, speak, mm-hmm. uh, just sort of like part of who we are, yes, so that it true. it would make sense that people are just sinful, yeah, from 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 the beginning. And then you'd say, but this other thing is cognition, and there we're trying to apply a concept to cognition that we can't really meaningfully apply we can apply sin to these people because they have a sin nature but if you want to apply non-resistant to their cognition and they it's not even possible that they possess the concept then you might go odd implies can like if it's the case that they can or you know ought to find god or ought to believe in god then it must be the case that they can but they can not therefore it's not the case they ought to so you might push back and say like invoke an odd implies can principle and say. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, but they yeah. they do have well, that sin nature.
1: And something else that we've n- not yet talked about is that you could split apart sin, um, in the sense of original sin, that which is to say a kind of disposition that, um, according to Orthodox Christianity, all human beings are born with this disposition mm-hmm. of will. Um you could split that apart from moral culpability, which is a move that, that some theologians and philosophers have made. And so in other words, you could say, Yeah, um, it's um they, it it is due to their, their sinful nature that they are in this state of non belief. But it's not their fault and they're not culpable for that.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's that's helpful. I I've uh just had that question and I'm still not settled on it. And I think there's actually been worries with regard to the notion of self-deception that's at play, specifically in Schellenberg's um, articulation of the argument because he doesn't really explain self-deception. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he, he, when you go into it, when you drill into it, especially with the literature on self-deception, it gets really murky and unclear that it's working. So. Yeah, um, and I think that might apply to what I was just saying about non-belief because non a non a non-believer, non-resistant non-believer is just not resistant. So yeah. he's hanging a lot on his definition of resistance. That's yeah. really important in order to cash out what it's not in terms of non-resistance. Um, cool. And then objection B is at least no more culpable than anyone else' belief. So this is just like the idea that like you think about a uh, a really uh, honest and persistent and meticulous atheist who's been searching for the truth. And it, it just seems like um, if you're going to be a sin-based account proponent, you're going to want to say that they are somehow less sort of sincere or conscientious, and so therefore they're more culpable. But that just seems counterintuitive, right? Because... Yeah. You can think about people who are theists that just seem really culpable, <laughs> and so it's, it looks like it's the case that the the reflective non-believers um, are at least as sincere and conscientious.
1: Yes, that, and that's a point that Schellenberg majors on um, in his 2015 book, The Hiddenness Argument. Um, yeah, so this is a sort of. Um, you know, compare the uh, most intellectually conscientious, sincere non-believer that you know and um, ask yourself, is it really plausible that that person is um, is worse than, in those respects, than the least conscientious, sincere, reflective theist? Um, or if you like, specifically Christian theists. And it seems really... Implausible to to affirm that.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned the oily tel- televangelist. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was a good one. I just think of uh, oh, what what's his name crying? Oh, I forget. Anyway, there's been a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, and then objection C is regarding the moral and epistemic traits. Like that sin-based accounts hang their hat on and say, "Look, these are the sort of things that are deficient in non-believers, and that's why they're resisting because they they're lacking something in terms of moral and epistemic virtue." Then it looks like um, a weird distribution. You would be committed to to, um, or it seems problematic that there's this distribution of according to your account, of virtues and vices that's really lopsided. Yeah. So and then why think like I don't know, people in Thailand have just been more sort of um less you know, careful and morally and epistemically in their investigation of God and and then that explains their their yeah. unbelief. So and the so ways yeah heard- it,
1: Yeah, the way Stephen Mason puts it is that, um, yeah, we expect to find variations in natural human abilities, um, like the ability to hear or or, um, IQ or things like that. But what would be really weird and um, surprising is if we found entire countries of people who are deaf and then other entire countries of people who can hear perfectly. And he is claiming that that's what the theist or the sin, the person committed to the sin-based response to would have to say is going on in terms of the moral and epistemic character virtues that determine whether a person ends up a theist or a non-theist.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that seems really counterintuitive because <laughs> <laughs> it just seems like all humans have vices in um, across the board. So it would be weird to be committed to saying, no, this region really has epistemic and moral vices, and that explains their non-belief or something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you canvass some really interesting options. So I thought yeah. we could do start back at, at Objection A and sort of you yeah. can give us kind of like someone who's interested in responding to these objections, what are the paths they might go down? Specifically with the Objection A, as a reminder, it's about preaxial axial non-believers. They can't plausibly be viewed as having resisted this monotheistic God because they didn't even possess the concept. So can you give us a sketch of the two options you mentioned, the, the two moves, and then sort of what are the pros and cons yeah, of each?
1: Absolutely. And I should just... Say in terms of what the what's going on here in, in the paper, um, what I'm kind of trying to do is almost give a cost-benefit analysis for someone wanting to maintain the sin-based response to hiddenness. So, I'm again, I'm not well. As I said, I'm not committed to a universal sin-based response. I'm not committed to, to denying that there are any non-resistant non-believers. Seems plausible to me that there are some. But what I'm trying to do is, that, um, is, to, is to say, well, if one were trying to defend a sin-based response, um, what would be the moves open to someone to try and cope with these three objections that you um very helpfully articulated? So in terms of um, objection A, yeah, pre-axial, prehistoric uh, people allegedly not having a monotheistic concept of God, um, worth just saying, I, I more or less don't try and dispute the empirical claim there, but some people have done. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, um, you can have a look at the footnotes in, in my paper to, to see the literature I point to on
0: that. Um, I'll provide a link to Adam Green's paper too. You might be yes, familiar with. That's great. It's a that really great one. one.
1: Um, so yeah, I basically say, well, one move that someone could make, is to try and say something very much along the lines of what William Lane Craig does say um, in response to the question of the fate of the unevangelized. Um, so Craig it appeals to Molinism, this idea that God knows what we freely would have done in any possible situation that we could have been in, um, including situations we never have actually been in. Um, and Craig basically wants to say that God has so arranged the world that all of the people in the areas that outside of um, exposure to monotheism or maybe even specifically Christian monotheism, he's so arranged the world that all of those people that fall outside of that zone, um, were such that, um, God knew that they would have freely rejected God if they had been exposed to that information. Um, so that's one option I sketch. I, I kind of register my uh, skepticism about that option as um, I don't don't think that's all that promising. I mean, one thing is that it, it invokes Molinism, which is metaphysically controversial. Um, and certainly, some very smart people have defended it, but um, in general, it's better if you can depend on as few controversial metaphysical views as possible. But the other thing right. is, it, it requires us to believe. What seems, I think, very counterintuitive, which is that every single human being who has never been exposed to theism or Christianity would have rejected that if they had been exposed to it. Um, mm. That seems like quite a, a claim to uh, have to, to commit oneself to.
0: <clears throat> yeah, and and I agree. This, it does not seem, for those reasons, the best option.
1: So then I, I the other option I give is what's what you might call the de re move. So in general, um, we can think about um, describing a person's mental states in two ways. De, if we describe their mental states, their beliefs, de dicto, we're describing them in terms of how they represent their beliefs to themselves. So if we have a prehistoric human who worships um, the maker of the sun, um, let's say, but they that what they think the maker of the sun is like is very different from the God of monotheism. So, um, de dicto, it would be wrong to say that they're worshiping God, but maybe we could say de re, they are worshiping God because the maker of the sun is in fact, the God of monotheism. If monotheism is true, um, a bit like, um, suppose I, you know, or suppose that someone didn't know that Superman is, uh, is um, Clark Kent, and um, they they um, really um, admire Superman. Um, well, they, we can say De Re, they admire Clark Kent. Um, not De Dicto, because they, that's not how they represent their own mental state to themselves, but De Re, they they do admire Clark Kent. Um, so, yeah, okay. th- th- you, you can probably see where this is going. The idea is to say, well, um, yeah, okay, maybe prehistoric humans didn't have this monotheistic concept of God that we do, but they, um, insofar as they um, had uh, concepts of things that, in fact, are identical with God, if God exists, and if they, you know, have certain religious attitudes, as I suggested, the maker of the sun or the maker of the the, the stars, um, the 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 kind of ground of my existence, all of these kinds of descriptions. Are in fact um, descriptions that uh, are fulfilled by God if God exists, and so we could say that they 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 are um, having attitudes towards God, um, or you or just um, you you might say that they implicitly worship and believe in God.
0: And then you mentioned a problem with this view, this move uh, that I call the Liz Eagle objection.
1: <laughs> I like that.
0: Yeah. The objection from the the lizard eagle. So you imagine that this person has fear toward the creator of the stars because, oh, my gosh, whoever created the stars must be so powerful. Mm. Kind of fear the power of that being, whatever it is. Oh, and by the way, I have a cultural story that tells me what that is. Namely, it is a gigantic being with the body of a lizard, head of an eagle, and a capricious temperament. And then you say, could such an attitude credibly be construed as a dayray attitude of fear toward God? And you say that seems dubious. So, could you explain that? Um, I'm not so sure yeah. I find it as dubious. Yeah, maybe yeah. you do. And um,
1: in a sense, um, I I think what I was trying to say by calling it dubious was that. Certainly, some people have objected to that. So Benjamin Cordry in his paper, is is um, cited there. He's got a whole paper where he objects to these types of de re move, um, where you try and say basically that people who don't explicitly avow belief in God or, or perhaps specifically the God of Christianity could nonetheless be seen as implicit believers or de re believers. And he thinks... And This is really implausible, especially with people whose ontology, their kind of map of the world, um, and their conceptualization of what the the being is that they have these attitudes of reverence or worship towards. If it's really different from how the god of monotheism is, then, then it, it, he thinks it, it gets implausible to say that they really are worshiping the god of monotheism implicitly.
0: Yeah. And I, I still think that the day Ray move kind of has traction there. I mean, mm-hmm. in a way I would just say, that's what the move is all about. You take this wild yeah. sort of description. Um, and then you have it under a different guise of <laughs> the same object under a different guise and you don't recognize it. Yeah. But imp- implicitly you do still have the re- requisite attitude so it's true, if if there's a Liz Eagle that they view as the creator of the stars, but they still fear the creator of the stars, um, then I, I think there's a sense in which they do fear God yeah. because God equals the creator of the stars. And I mean, I, I would just, maybe I need to re- read the paper, but I would wanna hear more about like, at what point does it become so distant, yeah. the concept, that now we lose de re because it just seems like you might not even possess the requisite concept at all and still have the right belief about the res or the object. Mm. Um, so even though the Liz Eagle is weird and really doesn't map on, as you say, ontologically to the theistic theistic God, uh, there's still enough there that, um i would say it w- it would map on yeah to the create creator of the stars it's hooking on um, yes
1: yeah. yeah i'm not yeah i'm not set against that either um by the way i wish i'd come up with the the, the name liz eagle um but that would have <laughs> well been-
0: there you go now <laughs> you've got it <laughs> <laughs> In there, definitely
1: um yeah I'm, I'm not set against that by any means um I will say, I think we can imagine really extreme cases where, so I think one that's been brought up in the literature before, not really in relation to divine hiddenness, but more just general kind of um, how language refers. So, you know, if Abraham was, if it was really the devil who was telling Abraham to sacrifice Isaac um, and Abraham's, um, the way that Abraham, um, that his word God or Yahweh, Uh, It wouldn't have been Yahweh yet, but if his word God was, if the way that the reference of that word was fixed was the being who told me to sacrifice my son Isaac, um, you might think that there's a reference failure there because the devil is too different from the being that um, perhaps, yeah, that, that Abraham thought he was picking out with the term God. Um, But but I don't think the Liz Eagle case is anywhere near that extreme. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah. But but there would be a way to to get that, though. You could say the Liz Eagle has a capricious temperament. That means the Liz Eagle is prone to make judgments and choose courses of action on the basis of emotion. And. The god of theism, as Swinburne says, is, you know, fully, fully rational and fully free and isn't prone to whims of emotion in terms of making judgments about what's best. And therefore, the Liz Eagle is going to make choices in terms of creating the world, creating the stars that that the god of theism just wouldn't make. And so... You have a fundamental difference in terms of divine action about the reasons this being would act on as opposed to what the reasons the the Liz Eagle would act on, so I don't know that's just a yeah, a friendly amendment or offer
1: where I end up landing on that whole Ray move is to say the best version of it, I think would be one that tries to identify our um, moral attitudes with um, and try to kind of have the locus of de re um, belief or worship or whatever towards, or indeed rejection of God, locating that in our moral attitudes. Um, uh, mm. And the, the reason for that was that I, um, I, I quite like Robert Adams account of obligation um, where he wants to say that obligation, if we, really reflect carefully on it, will realise that obligations are always o- obligations are, are fundamentally social. They're always owed to someone. Um, and if that's right, then um yeah, it, it seems like it might be a, a more promising avenue to say that um if someone kind of begrudges their moral obligations, they could be plausibly seen as De Re begrudging God, for example.
0: Okay, yeah, that that seems like a good avenue to explore further. And jumping into objection B regarding virtuous doubters and vicious uh believers, mm. this difference between the oily televangelist who's a vicious believer and the most virtuous sort of non-believer you can think of. Um and I've had I've had interaction. I mean, I at one point I was an atheist as well. Mm. But I also have had interactions with very thoughtful, intelligent um, uh, Justin Schieber is who, who came to oh, yeah, he, he hosts the channel Real Atheology. Theology. And I'm just like, you know, you think about the oily televangelist and you think about like Justin Schieber and I'm like, wow. So that that um, seems like a, a major problem for this sort of, of uh, response yeah. to the... Ob- objection can you explain what you think might be going on or how that you mentioned the insufficiency move or yeah. some ways to maybe gain traction
1: so i suggest a couple of moves that <clears throat> the the person who's trying to defend the sin-based response um would need to make if they want to uh, increase the plausibility of their view in the face of this worry about yeah virtue parity um, or even superiority of of non-theists compared with some theists um so basically i say one one thing is a is a, a kind of insufficiency move where you basically say well merely having um theistic belief merely in, in intellectually assenting um etc um uh, is is insufficient for genuine faith um uh, genuine saving faith, if you like, and I think that you know that's very clearly affirmed um, in various places in the New Testament and later Christian tradition. Um, you know, you think about um, Jesus saying that various people will come to him and say, "You know, Lord, Lord, we did all this stuff in your name," <clears throat> um, but Jesus seems to imply that they aren't, they 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 weren't real followers of of his. Um, James says kind of that you know even the demons believe that God exists and shudder, but you know um obviously demons are thoroughly opposed to God, and so on, so I think that, that that's an obvious first thing that anyone would want to say if they're trying to defend uh a sin based um response to divine and hiddenness. Then, and
0: then is just so I understand is the is the way this filters back is to say. The oily televangelist is likely a nonbeliever.
1: Yeah, uh, that that would be the idea. The idea would be that the well, uh, not a nonbeliever, but lacks genuine faith. Um,
0: oh, okay, so, and, and but again, help me understand. And my audience might be wondering this too, because all we need is belief that God exists for these accounts to start the relationship, as Schellenberg says. Yes. So,
1: that's right, but the thought is to click yeah, the thought would be, um that uh yeah, propositional belief that God exists is um well, let's grant for now that it's necessary for having a relationship with God, but it's not sufficient okay that's 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 simply so is yeah, sure the the oily okay. televangelist let's grant that he does believe that God exists, but he doesn't have the right kind of a attitudes of the heart attitudes of the the will and so on towards god um such that he would count as having genuine faith genuine saving
0: faith okay and then how would that apply to the atheist The, the virtuous atheist
1: uh well so this is why i think that um one probably would need to go further than just the insufficiency move because at this point all you've managed to say is that well okay um the we found a a non-theist who's superior morally and epistemically um to some theist um but and we've we've denied that the theist there was a a a genuine um you know had genuine saving faith um but what i basically say is that 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 still looks like it's going to leave you in a situation of having to say well Gosh, like there, there can't be very many people with genuine saving faith in the world at all, um, because um, you know if um, if every time you find someone who looks like a, a, a really intellectually and morally virtuous um, non-believer, um, we have to say that all of the believers who are on a par with them are or, are not you know don't really have genuine saving faith. That looks like the the circle of who has genuine saving faith is going to get shrunk very small indeed.
0: Okay, yeah, and and even though the more I think about that, that that seems uh, problematic because even if you say, well, hell's going to be really populated if assuming the classic classical view, um, and heaven there's just going to be this small amount of people, and mm-hmm. hell's going to be really populated. I mean. To some extent, there there is some scripture that backs that up, but it looks like it's way too small of of a a number. Yeah, 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 because the bar is too high. If you think about the the most virtuous non believer, and then everyone below that is just doesn't have genuine saving faith. That would be okay. Then how do you how do you uh, patch that up, or what do you?
1: yeah what i call the non necessity move which might sound surprising mm. at, at first glance but it's the the move of saying that well propositional belief that god exists um may not only uh, be insufficient for genuine saving faith maybe it's not even necessary for saving faith maybe there can be mm. people who and i as uh, maybe there could be people who merely Hope that God exists. So hope is a much weaker attitude than full belief that God exists. So maybe they merely mm. hope that God exists. Um they think it's unlikely, but they would like it to be the case. Um but they have perhaps they have the appropriate attitudes of the heart and will. Um and maybe that and, and so they could count as having genuine saving faith. Um and that, then I suggest that that would ease the problem quite substantially because then you, you actually are in a position of being able to say that, well, the person that you um, encounter as being really intellectually virtuous and epistemically conscientious, um, uh, who, who isn't um, a theist, um, maybe um, they might turn out to have had genuine saving faith. Um, and even though that might come as a surprise to, to them, um, even that's that's roughly the idea anyway.
0: OK. Wow. Yeah. And then but you say the worry with that is then it looks like saving faith is compatible with outright disbelief.
1: Yeah. So I I basically say like there would be a harder and a softer version of that move so that the harder oh. version of that move, or bolder, if you like, version of that move would be to say that, yeah, maybe even people who fully disbelieve, outright disbelieve that God exists could have genuine saving faith. Um, you know, contrary to all of their explicit kind of, um, you know, uh, declarations of what they themselves think. Um, so, yeah, that that, that might be... Um, a bit more difficult to defend but then i suggest a slightly softer version of that move would be to say yeah maybe someone who who hopes where hope seems to be incompatible with fool's disbelief you know, you can you can hope some, for something that you think is quite unlikely but if you think that the thing in question is really almost certainly not the case perhaps you can't hope for it um okay i don't know maybe that's- i mean maybe you can i'm I'm not sure i mean there is a whole literature on on the nature of hope uh um, yeah but
0: yeah that sounds right re-
1: yeah so that's that's the yeah, idea that
0: anyway. that's mm-hmm. great again that's a i think a real benefit of this paper because you're you're exploring the intellectual space the logical space yeah. um and then lastly sort of to wrap up what is the response to um objection C about sin's spatio-temporal distribution? How how might a proponent of the sin-based account sort of best respond to that one?
1: Yeah, well, I suggest a couple of ways to go there. And one is to say that, well, basically, I don't think it's an option for an, an orthodox Christian theist to say that the inborn disposition to sin, uh, what you might call original sin. I don't think uh, it's open to an Orthodox Christian theist to say that that is present more strongly in some people or some groups of people than others. I think uh, Orthodox Christianity has always been clear that all human beings are um, born with this disposition to sin. And uh, it's, it's not the case that some people are more originally sinful than others. But what I do suggest is that it it seems open to the sin-based responder to hiddenness to appeal to what you might call social or cultural sin, um, where the idea would be that yes, certain um, that it's not just the actions of individuals that that um, can manifest this sinful disposition, but it's actually entire social structures um legal um uh, policies um institutions all of that kind of thing could also be um kind of shaped in ways that go contrary to the things that god values um and which um make people living in that society less likely to end up believing that god exists um and i think this this is it's relevant to go back to something we were saying earlier about um, splitting apart sin and culpability, which might sound a weird thing to do, but I actually think it does make sense, especially when we're talking about social or cultural sin, I think to to think that um, sin in this, this sense of um, where it transcends just individual decisions and actions, um, could be part of the explanation for non-belief and yet it's not the case that the individual who's caught up in that is culpable for being
0: caught up in that web interesting yeah and and then you do say that there's also the worry that how would you reduce corporate culpability to individual cul- culpability yeah. so
1: that's right, and this is why I think again. This is why I I don't, in the end, go for a universal sin based response because I think the universal sin based response, which says there are no non resistant non believers at all, does need to be able to say that um, every individual non believers non belief is due to their own individual sin, um, or at least if the, if the claim is the further claim is going to be made that. Every individual non believer is culpable for their non belief. I think it does need to be um, the case that they are, it's their own individual sin which explains their non belief. Whereas the thing I just sketched with cultural sin doesn't give you that result, um, which I'm okay with. Um, and again, I think I'm wanting to say in this paper that sin based responses could still be part of the conversation and could still form part of the explanation, um, even if one isn't claiming that they explain every instance of non-belief.
0: Okay. So this is kind of where, where you end. And I thought we'd bring it back to the hiddenness arguments. (laughs) So it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, these responses that you've canvassed at least so far, there's plausibility in them. Mm. You need to sort of cash out the, the route forward and respond to some further objections, but it looks like this isn't going to be a good good route to go against Schellenberg's argument. Yes,
1: that's correct. Because again, Schellenberg right. only for his forming formulation of the argument, he only needs there to have been one, you know, right. minimum of right. one non-resistant, non-believer in all of human history,
0: um, which is to say, could, one. Could this- could this factor into a response to Schellenberg, with, along with other stuff?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm inclined to think that Schellenberg is still going to have the more plausible response in, in terms of just saying, "Fine, I can grant you that um, sin, you know, can play more of an explanatory role than some people have thought." But I'm still going to maintain, you might say, that like it's it's just really plausible that at least one human being. Has ended up in a state of non-belief, and that, and it wasn't their fault that they did so. Um, right. Whereas I think if you switch, if we switch to thinking about um, uh, arguments from hiddenness that are probabilistic, where it it's not a claim of strict incompatibility between God's existence and there being non-resistant non-believers, then um, then the the person bringing the sin-based response isn't having to deny that there were any non-resistant non-believers in human history. But what they can say is, well, these sin-based, maybe more of the non-belief than we might initially have thought could be explained by the sorts of factors we've just been talking about.
0: And and would, on this way of applying the sin-based account to the probabilistic arguments from Hiddenness, would you still need more resources like a a cumulative case sort of argument that you
1: think well maybe yeah i think so because um yeah because you're you're going to need to explain why god um would see fit to create a world where culture can play such a shaping role in the information that we get exposed to for example um right and and i think you know and i've i've um i've alluded to the paper i i wrote in response to mates and on and sort of demographics and divine hiddenness so i th- i think such stories can plausibly be told but so yeah i'm seeing it as in a terms of a cumulative case where we we, we have several causal factors that go into the explanation for why in a theistic world there would be such a thing as non-belief
0: and, and I'll just sketch one way that I've thought about, and you can take this or leave it or or think about it. So in the literature on animal suffering and evolution, there's an argument called the only way argument. Mm-hmm. And the basic idea is evolution, you know, the argument is evolution is just so fraught with pain and suffering. Why would a good God allow this? It would be really surprising if there was a good God who used evolution as the means by which to produce species. And and then um the response is, well, that's the only way God could have done it to achieve the great goods that come out of evolution. So yeah. those those good those goods are, you know, biodiversity, yeah. there's there's all sorts of things that, that come out of the, the good of evolution, even though it's fraught with Tons of pain and suffering. So I was thinking, what about a similar move here, where you say culture is cultural evolution is so valuable because you get these the richness of culture and the diversity, and you don't just have a a one mono. I mean, God could have created the world with just one culture, yeah, but that'd be boring and bland, and there'd be so much missing and and lost and. That's not even the picture of heaven we get. We get a, a multicultural yeah. view of heaven. And so um, the the thought would be that this was the only way for God to do that. Now, God could have just intervened periodically mm. in cultural development to give certain people like the theistic concept. I'm going to just drop in the theistic concept here. But then... That would be really irregular and it would be disruptive to culture. They'd be like, there'd be no plausibility structure to support this new belief that God miraculously dropped right. in. Mm-hmm. And so, so it looks like God, the only way God could have achieved these great goods from culture is to let it play out, yeah. evo- you know, in an evolutionary way. And even though you might say, well, wait, why didn't he start it quicker? Or It's such a bummer that so many people are not going to believe in him. And then that's when all these responses come in. Yes. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah. It's
1: exactly. not the
0: case that all these people were non believers necessarily. Yeah, yeah. Precisely. So, yeah,
1: yeah. I just, well, I think that that just, yeah, I'm very sympathetic to what you just sketched. And I think it, it, it um, has a lot of synergy with the types of moves that I was making in the paper.
0: Great. Great. Well, that might be another thing for uh, people to explore. Definitely. All right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Well, is there is there a place that – oh, you're welcome. It's been a great conversation, and I'm just wondering, is there a place where people can best sort of find you and follow you?
1: Yeah. Well, I am on Twitter, or now called X, um, just Max Baker Heitch. Um But uh, you can also find open-access versions of pretty much all of my papers except for the book that I just – recently published with um Cambridge University Press in the Elements series um that that one uh, is being a book isn't isn't um, there but otherwise um my papers are all accessible on academia.edu if you just google um max baker Heitch and academia.edu you can find all my stuff there
0: Oh, great. And thank you for correcting my pronunciation. I just realized I didn't say it sort of it's oh, no, Heitch, Heitch. okay. Heich, Okay. That's
1: it's very understandable that it, it looks like it should be hitched. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. heich. Okay. That's cool. Well, mm-hmm. thank you, Dr. Max Baker Heich. I really appreciate it. Um, and I look forward to what you're going to do next. It, just as a preview, are there any projects you're currently in the pipeline on?
1: Yes um yeah currently working on I just gave a paper at a conference on the evidential value of near death experiences um so that hopefully oh, wow. will emerge in some form maybe later this year um working on a paper another paper um with a colleague on basically what we should think natural theology is um uh, what yeah? What would count as natural theology, um, and then um, co-authoring a book on uh, essentially the the space of me- uh, of metaphysical possibility open to God in terms of um, the the choices or trade-offs you would be faced with if choosing to create embodied rational social creatures, and and we think that that's going to have implications for the problem of evil and the problem of divine hiddenness.
0: Oh wow. All right. Well, keep an eye out for that. And thank you again for being on the podcast. Well,
1: thanks again for having me. It's been great fun.